The sermon text reading is from Luke 11, 37 through 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked, asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and prosecute, so that the blood against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On um, September 15, 1963, at 16th Street Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, there were four young girls who were in the basement of that church preparing for Youth Day. This is the day when they participate in the worship service, uh, bringing their gifts to bear in worship. And as they were making the final adjustments on their dresses that morning in the basement of that church, a bomb went off. White supremacists had placed dynamite at the base of the foundation outside the basement. Immediately, all four girls were murdered. And that bomb not only destroyed that church, it shook all of Birmingham. And the next day, Charles Morgan, a white lawyer, was addressing a a commerce club meeting. And at that meeting, he said essentially this. He said, Look, it doesn't really matter who placed the sticks of dynamite at the base of 16th Street Church. All of us did it, in fact. And and what he was saying was that given the, the racial climate of 1963 Birmingham, and given the complicitness of the leadership of Birmingham, it really doesn't matter physically who put it there. We were all responsible for creating that environment. But what was interesting was the response. 
the response from a number of people was this. It was death threats. In fact, there's one particular letter that, that Charles Morgan received at his home that outlined all the movements of his wife and his children day to day. And at that moment, he decided it's time to move out of Birmingham. And he did, and became a civil rights lawyer after that. Here we are in a series called Portrait of Jesus. We're looking at, at the, the character of Jesus one brushstroke at a time, trying to put this picture together of, of who Jesus is. And what we've been saying all along is as we come to know him, we come to know ourselves better. And when I come to a story like Charles Morgan uh, on the day after that bombing, I, I, I asked myself this question as I did this week in preparation, and that is, do I have what it takes to, to speak boldly like that? Would I have the courage if I were in Birmingham in 1963, and I bet you, you wonder the same thing. Today, we're looking at the boldness of Jesus. We're looking at how does Jesus, when he's in the lion's den, when he's in a place where there are death threats, how does he respond And I want to suggest that today, this morning, we're going to overthrow some stereotypes. One of those, most importantly, being Jesus meek and mild. And yes, Jesus was meek and mild, but he was so much more than that. He was the roaring lion, as we're going to see as well. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage through the lens of three things. One of the things that we talk about here at City Church is not only look at the words of Jesus, but also look at the works and the ways of Jesus. And we're going to see that on display this morning because not only are we going to look at what he said, or secondly, we're going to look at the way he said it, and then finally, why he said it. What he said, way he said it, and then finally, why he said it. Let's jump in here with the first thing, which is verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. So, pun intended, let me set the table for us here. Jesus has walked into the home of a Pharisee, but right prior to this in the passage, Jesus has been teaching on this, essentially. That is, what is true on the inside will reflect on what's true on the outside. So there's a bit of irony going on here. No sooner does Jesus get the last word of that sermon, as it were, out of his mouth, that the Pharisee comes up to him and says, Hey, Jesus, my house now. And this is classic Middle Eastern hospitality. And, and it, was, it was expected that a great religious leader would have another great religious leader over. You keep the same company, after all. And so Jesus goes into the home, and what was expected at the home of a Pharisee was that you would wash your hands. Now, if you read this for the first time, or you heard it for the first time, you might say to yourself, well, well, of course you should wash your hands before dinner. I mean, that's what my mom used to say, right? I mean, you wash your hands. But that's not the washing going on here. The washing that's going on here is a ritual. It's a ritual of, uh, of essentially saying, I'm clean. And Jesus knows that this was not something commanded in the Scriptures. This is what's called extra-biblical. The Pharisees have added this on as something to do in order to be clean for dinner. And so, not surprisingly perhaps, Jesus is sort of not into extra-biblical things. And so, he doesn't do it. Now, I want you to hear this. I don't think that Jesus was spoiling for a fight. I really don't. But I also think that Jesus wasn't naive. And every time you see a passage where Jesus is with the Pharisees, there's a throwdown, isn't there? Something's going down. Something's going to happen. So Jesus comes to this home, maybe not knowing for sure what's going to happen. But sure enough, he doesn't even get to the table, and something's gone down. And it says that the Pharisee was astonished, which means that the Pharisee was just overcome by events. (laughs) You can imagine imagine seeing the face of that Pharisee. Do you see the, the Pharisee? He's astonished. Whoa, 
what's going on here? Jesus picks up on that. And that's when he begins to say what he thinks about them. Two things that I want to say that sort of distill together the seven things that Jesus says here. Number one, he says this, you're disintegrated. Now, the word there, disintegrated, is actually two words, disintegrated, without integration. Look at verses 39 through 41 with me again. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus knows this as we do. There are are two sides of us. There's the outside self, and there's the inner self. And the, the question is, which one is the true self? Earlier, Mark was praying about Image management. I love that phrase. It really captures well what's going on here. The Pharisees are the greatest of the greatest in the religious land. They have the greatest honor. They have the highest office. They have a lot of image to maintain. And so what Jesus is noting here is not what they do as much as what they leave undone, you see. And that really is the definition of hypocrisy. It's this image management, knowing that there's a gap, but what we don't want others to see is the gap. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, a Catholic priest, one of my favorite books of all time, in fact, I would say top ten, Ragamuffin Gospel, he says this, the noonday devil of the Christian life is the temptation to lose the inner self while preserving the shell of edifying behavior. Suddenly I discovered that I am ministering to AIDS victims to enhance my resume. I dropped hints about the absolute priority of meditation and contemplation to create the impression that I am a man of prayer. At some unremembered moment, I have lost the connection between internal purity of heart and external works of piety. In the most humiliating sense of the word, I have become a legalist. I have fallen victim to what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I want you to know that one of the reasons why that is one of my favorite books is because I immediately connected with that. I said, that's my life. I mean, the reality is, I want you to think of me as a great pastor. I want you to think of me as a great teacher. I want you to perhaps even think of me as a great parent. Or fill in the blank with the, the different, um, the different uh, I guess, descriptions of my life. But the reality is, I have doubts about all of those things. That if you could get into my heart, if you could get into my mind... In my most vulnerable moment, you would see that there are days when I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I'm a very good parent at all. There, there are times when I think, man, I, I don't know that I, I really have pastored well today or this week or something like that. But there are days when I feel that gap, but you don't necessarily see that because primarily what you see is me up here on the stage. There is, a, there, by definition, often in our culture, we create these scenarios where we want image management, And then we help foster that ourselves by feeding that image management, you see. And so when I get this, I see that. I know that in my own heart, as a follower of Jesus Christ, nonetheless, there's still a gap between what Christ calls me to be in my life as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, and all the other hats that I wear, and the reality of my life like that. Frederick Buechner, another great writer in a work called Telling Secrets, he put it this way regarding the self. Our original shimmering self gets buried so deep, we hardly live out of it at all. Rather, we learn to live out of all the other selves 
which we are constantly putting on and taking off like coats and hats against the world's And so my, one of my questions to you is, what, what is the hat that you wear today? Coming in here this morning. What would you say the hat is? And what would you say the gap is? Knowing that maybe for some of you, you've come in and you have children and like you were at wit's end with your children this morning, but you wear a smile in here today. Or, or in your singleness, you put on a happy face, but you're dying on the inside because of your marital status right now. I mean, what is it? There's something that, I mean, isn't it true? We all are, have been taught to put on our, our best face in public, including in worship. And the reality is there, there's that gap. And in its worst forms, it becomes hypocrisy. And this is specifically what Jesus goes after with the religious leaders. Look at verse 42. He says this, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, I thought about what Charles Morgan and what happened there in Birmingham. And how easy it is to, to do the public things, to tithe, to give offerings, to come to Sunday morning worship and things like that. I mean, that's what all of Birmingham was doing, and it's what we do as well. And the question is, is, is what our lives look like between the Sundays, does it reflect the singing that we do in here? What we say about God publicly, is that what we preach personally and privately to those closest to us? And that's, to me, where I think the rubber meets the road. And what Jesus does is brilliant here, because the Pharisees and the scribes, by the way, the difference was that the Pharisees were essentially the preachers, and the scribes were writing the commentaries that the preachers were reading. That's how they kind of worked together, and so they hung out a lot together. And so they're hanging out together with Jesus in this home. And, and so it's fascinating that, that, that their strength is theology. Their strength is knowing the law of God. What is it that God demands? And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes after their strength and exposes them. How so? There's another passage, Matthew chapter 22. And there, Jesus is with a, with a, preaching to the crowd, and there's a, a young scribe, a young lawyer, who comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, Rabbi. What's the greatest commandment? Now, there's 600-plus commandments in Judaism. And most commentators think that he's probably trying to catch Jesus. Like, really? You're going to put that one above all these others? And here's what Jesus says in reply in verses 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. You know what he's doing there? Integration. He's saying that, that if you truly love God, if you truly if you, you worship Him, He's your everything, then your outer life will just naturally reflect that. That's essentially what Jesus was saying here in our passage as well. He says, like, if you do these things within, in your heart of hearts, man, the outward takes care of itself. And what he was seeing was that these, they were giving of themselves they were giving of the tithes and the offerings, but they were ignoring justice. And we, there's so many passages in the Gospels where we see the religious leaders, instead of caring for the poor and the powerless, instead they were berating the poor and the powerless. Some of it was racial in character. Some of it was economic in character. Some of it was spiritual in character. But we see this gap here 
called hypocrisy, and Jesus is going after it. And what he says next here is fascinating. He goes from, because you're, you lack integration, because you don't have a good sense of yourself, more on that here in a second, it leads to the second thing. You're deaf, he says. He really lowers the boom. They're already seething, mind you, okay? They're already have their knives out to carve up Jesus, not whatever it was they're going to eat that day. But when he goes after the second thing, the unmarked graves, look at what he says in verse 44 to bring that out. He says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In Judaism, to touch a dead body was to make yourself ritualistically unclean, impure. And so what Jesus is saying is, is like, you're like an open grave, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You, and and what, what is it? It's unmarked. And so people just fall in into their own grave, so to speak. And they touch that dead body and it makes them dead spiritually. In other words, religious leaders, rather than being the great commentaries, mouthpieces of the Lord for salvation, you lead people to wickedness because you are wicked. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying that to a great pastor or theologian and saying, well, you're no different from a psychopathic killer. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is saying here. I know you, I see you, and I see the gap. Mind the gap, he says. And as a result, it leads to a place where they are guilty of leading people to death, as it says here. In fact, he goes on to say, he says, you don't lead people to salvation, you lead them to hell, in essence. Here's where I want to end the first point. I want to ask you, as you hear that this morning, how do you search your own heart right now? Maybe, again, it was this morning on the way, on the way here. Maybe you got into a fight, or, or maybe there's something else that, man, were we to, to hear it, if we could see our thoughts, if we could see our behaviors, and it came on one of those screens, a digital screen, you would say, I, I would be ashamed of what that is. And so the, the question I have for you is, Jesus came to confront the religious leaders in the place of their greatest need. How does Jesus want to do that for you? What, what is your great need this morning? And, and maybe you know it, maybe you don't yet know it, and it needs to yet be confronted. But if you do, what, what might it be? And I want to leave you with that for a second, because secondly here, I want you to see the way he said it, because we're going to see that on the other side of conviction comes redemption here in a moment. But the first thing I want you to think about is, I want you to imagine Jesus coming to your home. And the very first thing that Jesus does, he doesn't admire your kitchen. He doesn't admire your, 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 your appliances. The first thing that he goes after is something deep within your heart. You know, Frederick Buechner, in that same work, Telling Secrets, he goes on to say this, no one ever invited home for dinner a prophet more than once. I like that. And, and some of you are saying, well, you keep going on, Scott. I'm going to take you off my dinner list as well, right? That's a joke. But... Um, you know, I mean, you know those people in your life, right? You know those people that you're like, man, too hot to handle, right? Like, if, if there, there's a bit of prophetic voice in them, and 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 so you can do one of two things to the prophet. You can either say, preach, let me hear more, or you can say, oof, uh, this is a little too much. And I'll tell you, like, I'm more given to the latter than the former, and I bet you you know something about that too. It's hard. Giving the presence of one who's prophetic, right? And that's what Jesus was. Now, he's prophet, priest, and king, but we're really seeing a lot of prophet here. And, and so it takes courage to be a prophet. That's my point. It takes boldness. 
right? And what he does here, and I distilled it, but there are seven actually woes given here. Now, what, here's, let me tell you what a woe is. A woe is a judgment. He's giving seven judgments to the religious leaders of Israel. He's saying to those of highest religious honor, who have the highest office in the land, so to speak, what he is saying to them is saying, you are destined for hell. You are destined to be eternally cut off from God if you don't change the way that you're headed here. So when I said in the second point here, I want you to see the way he said it, here's what I want you to see. Here's the word, provocation. Jesus is going after their hearts by provoking them. Okay? I wonder if, if when you listen to Jesus on this, you're wondering, man, he's, he's kind of harsh, right? And maybe depending on your background, your, your life story, maybe there's reason for it feeling more harsh than for some of you in here. But regardless of that, I want you to see something. The word provocation actually is two words, a compound word, pro and vocation. Pro meaning to go forth, to call for, or excuse me, forth, and vocation is to call. Like when we say that we have a vocation, it means we have a calling. That's what that word means in the actual Latin. Provocation. It's to call forth. In other words, it's to trigger. We hear the word trigger and we immediately think amygdala hijack or or something like that. But what Jesus is doing here is he's intentionally provoking them to to, to create a certain response in them. And the only way that he can do that is to first expose them. He has to show them who they actually are. He, they need to come face-to-face with their true selves. They need to do dealings with Jesus with their true self before they can continue on to become who they were intended to be by God. And so, and so I, I couldn't help but think about that, that character from, uh, from my childhood, reading Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lion and Witcher in the Wardrobe. And, of course, I know many of you are familiar with it. And years and years ago, I actually mentioned this one scene. And if you've been here for a while, maybe you'll remember it regardless. But there's this one scene where the Pimsy's children are moving into Narnia for the first time. And, and they come to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Do you remember the scene? Mr. and Mrs. the talking beavers, right? And, and so they, they, they're in the home, and they're talking about this character named Aslan. And they describe Aslan as a roaring lion. And little Lucy, the, the youngest of the Pimsy's children, says, Oh, he, he doesn't sound safe. He sounds awful, in fact. And you remember what Mrs. Beaver says? She says, oh, child, you need to know, yes. Yeah, he is, he's not safe, but he is good. When Jesus comes after you, you need to know that he's not safe. He is good. But in the process, he brings you to safety. And the only way that he can do that is to encounter you. Mike, uh, years ago, I remember for the first time I heard him say this, and it's really stuck with me. The word encounter is also uh, another compound word for counter. It means to be challenged. The word encounter, we don't typically think of it that way, but it means to, to be challenged. In order to grow in our faith, the only way we can honestly do that, I think more often than not, is to be encountered. We have to be challenged by Jesus. It requires his boldness. And re- look, the reality is, how does that happen? And the answer is it, it often isn't just in the scriptures and conviction. It's actually through our relationships with each other. One of the things that I think is going on here in this propagation is that Jesus is attuning his voice to the environment that he's in. One of the terms that maybe you've heard us as pastors say in the last couple of years is talking about what is attunement. And attunement means to regulate your voice for the environment that you're in. 
And so I, I could imagine when my kids were younger, we would go to Kenler Park, and in the park there, I would watch these mothers, and a little boy, a little girl would come running to them, skin knee. And, and so often what I would see that mother do is that, that mother would drop down to a knee, and she would get eye level, make an eye contact with her little girl. And I can remember several scenes where I've seen this, and, and, and she would attune her voice to the need of her child. It was beautiful. You know, child comes crying, right? You can imagine that. Maybe for you as a parent, you, you're picturing yourself doing that. And why do you change the, the actual inflection of your voice to your, your child? Why do you do that? It, it's, it's God-given, actually. It's how you're designed. You meet them with their softness, with their powerlessness. You actually approach them, and you actually create a, a boundary of safety for them. That's what it means to tune your voice. Now, it could be that for some of you are saying, that's not the voice I heard growing up. It was buck up, suck it up. It was like, you don't have needs. Right? And, you, and you chose to respond by not having needs emotionally because it was too painful to be vulnerable when you weren't being attuned properly. And what, the reason why I mention that is Jesus always attunes his voice to the scene that he's in. You remember there's another passage, John chapter 3, where he's with Nicodemus, who was another Pharisee. But he has a completely different voice with Nicodemus. You remember this? Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night. And, and he's like, Rabbi, you've been saying all these things about salvation, and, and this is not what we were taught. What do you mean by that? He says, you must be born again. But Rabbi, what does that mean that, to be born again? And Jesus explains it to him. And what you see is that, that Jesus attunes his voice. And because of the curiosity of Nicodemus, Jesus is, his voice is actually softer than at any other point with any other Pharisee. And, and so what do you see here? You see that Jesus attunes his voice by escalating his voice. I mean, just like, again, as a parent, you want to drop to that knee when your child is in pain and is in suffering, often of no fault of their own. But if, but if your child is, is headed towards a cliff, you attune your voice differently. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Or, or maybe it's sternness or something else. You, you attune your voice as a parent. You attune your voice as an authority. You attune your voice as a friend for the need in the room. So Jesus is actually escalating for the purpose of exposing them for the purpose of gaining their attention. More on that here in a second. But I want to ask you this right now. Do you have someone in your life that attunes their voice to your actual need. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. How do you know when you have a true friend? Because they're willing to wound you. They're willing to wound you for love. They're willing to wound you so that you might have a better life. That's love. Love is not turning a blind eye to your brokenness. That's actually neglect. Jesus is not one to neglect, but Jesus is one to love. And so the question that, that you need to be asking is, do I have someone like and then And if you don't, could it be? Because people have learned not to attune their voice to your actual need. Is it possible that because of the Heisman stance or something else, maybe that, they, that you have wounded them in the past when they have tried to give you a wound of love. And you've powered up on them or you've neglected them. Who knows? But, but the question that I think all of us should be asking in this passage is, do we have someone like that in our lives who's willing to wound us for love? 
But that begs this question, how did Jesus do it? Like, what allowed Jesus to go into the lion's den? I mean, what would allow Jesus to, and not just in this passage, but how many other passages are like this, where Jesus goes into the lion's den? He goes into a place where he knows that murders, death threats are coming, and he's willing to live courageously like that. How is that possible? Here's the answer. Because of something that Mike talked about last week, groundedness. Jesus himself was grounded. One of the questions that came up uh, after Mike's sermon last week, Mike actually shared this with us at staff meeting, is that someone came up to him, maybe you've been here this morning, and asked this question. When Mike was teaching about being inside the box, remember he said that, uh, that hyperarousal is living constantly triggered, right? You're living uh, what sometimes is called in neuroscience amygdala, the amygdala brain or the reptilian brain. You're, everything triggers you. Like, and I think sometimes we feel in the last year in the pandemic that there's been a lot of amygdala hijack going on here, right? Uh, but the, the, the downside of that is hypoarousal, where you don't feel anything at all. You go to numbness, which is also interesting because in the midst of a pandemic where we're all triggered, it seems, we're seeing the rise of addictions like never before numbing out. It goes hand in hand, it turns out. And what Mike was saying is that, that, that God calls us, that he's designed us to live in the box in between. And one of the questions that came up to Mike this past week was this. And it's like, well, does that mean that I don't feel things deeply? Like I'm supposed to be on a scale of 1 to 10, about a 5. Mike's like, no, that's, that's not at all. We feel things deeply. Here's why that's so important. Jesus felt things deeply. He was deeply passionate. He was righteous in his anger in this passage, but he wasn't triggered. He certainly wasn't numbing out either, was he? But he definitely wasn't triggered. Why? Because he was grounded. Where was he grounded? How was he grounded? Well, we know he, knows, I mean, he, he, he knew the scriptures back and forth, of course. He was grounded with the Father. Do you remember what happens when Jesus is being baptized? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Here's the question I have for you. Do you know that same voice? The voice of the Father says, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you want to have courage, if you want to have boldness in your life, the only way that can happen is that you have to be grounded in the Father. Because if you're not, what ends up happening is you either go numb or fearful, you avoid being courageous, or people say, no, no, I'm, I'm willing to tell it like it is. But instead you just end up hurting people because you're not for people. You come, it comes from a place of cynicism rather than being grounded in the Father and the voice of love. The only way that Jesus could do what he did was because he had union with the Father which means that we can only have the courage and the boldness of Jesus if we have union as well. Union with Christ, as Paul put it, in many of his letters. And so, if we want that boldness, we need the boldness of Jesus first, which leads to the very last thing. This is where we conclude, and that is why he said what he did. I already mentioned the first thing, which is to gain our attention. He asked the question, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? For me personally, one of the great turning points in my life happened in a DNA group. We didn't call it a DNA group, but that was the equivalent. This was about 20 years ago when I was in seminary. And I was in a group of about four or five guys who were all there together in the seminary. And, and so, you know, some of you already know something about me and a little bit about me that, that you know, when I'm under stress, I, I go to anger. And, and, and so that's something that God has been dealing with me for 
for my whole life. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, that was, that's been my story. And, and I'll never forget, about 20 years ago in this group one day, uh, the, the, uh, my friend and the leader of the group was teaching in something or saying, I don't even remember what it was, doesn't matter. But I, I'll never forget that I, I sort of powered up on him. I, I was disappointed somehow, and I was a bit demanding in my demeanor that day. And what he did next, I'll never forget. I'm telling you, as, as, soon, as easy as I see you here in these chairs, I see myself. I remember exactly where I was on the sofa in my because of the meeting in our house. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly where he was. And I'll never forget his face. I'll never forget his words. Three words that changed me. He said this, you intimidate me. In the 30 plus years of my life at that point, almost 30 years at that point, no one had ever said those words to me. You intimidate me. He could have just as easily slapped me across the face and would have had the same effect. But what was fascinating was he was vulnerable. He didn't like power up on me in response or anything like that. He got vulnerable with me. But in doing so, he exposed me. He was saying something in his vulnerability about what I was doing to him. And I, I'm telling you, I'm still a work in progress today. But I've taken those words and I've thought about that so many times. I've asked the Lord just to work on me, that I would come in with softness and tenderness rather than that, that powering and demanding anger. And, and so, and so I, I, again, I say, you have to have someone in your life who, will, who loves you so much that they're, they're willing to gain your attention in ways that expose you, but for the purpose of the second thing here, and that is to provide you with a true choice in your life. Jesus is providing the, the Pharisees a true choice. I know that our tendency is to look at something like this and say, Jesus is basically doing what he does with the Pharisees all the time. To hell with you. But that's not what he does because of verse 41. In verse 41, let me read it again. But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What's he doing there? He's saying, look, if you keep going this way, you are headed for hell. But reintegrate. Come back to me, and you will have something that you've never had before. Integration. Wholeness. What Jesus does is he, he takes, takes him to the fork in the road and he says, there's a true choice here, friends. And if you choose the right pathway, it will, it will go well for your life. We know how it ends. In fact, the word there in some translations is they sought to provoke Jesus in return. And instead of provoking towards life, they provoked him towards death instead. But I want you to see that, that Jesus, his goal is grace. How do we know that? Again, Nicodemus with the Pharisees. He actually gives to Nicodemus the plan of salvation. And towards the end of the gospel, what do we find out? Nicodemus has become a follower of Jesus. He knows that it's possible for the religious leaders to repent and to change. And if that's true for them, how much more is that true for us as well? Jesus confronts us. He exposes us so that we might repent, so that we might walk in him, whether that be regarding racial issues whether that be regarding economics, sexuality, ethics, whatever it might be, he calls us saying, look, if you call me Lord, let me be Lord of your sexuality. Let me be Lord of your politics. Let me be Lord of your understanding of ethnicity and race and so forth, you see. And it leads to the very last thing here, that why he says what he says is so that he might provide redemption for us. Remember, 
Jesus didn't say to the Pharisees, to hell with you. Instead, what did he say? I'll go to hell for you. Jesus knew that in doing this, he was signing his death warrant. And we saw this in multiple places. That they'll say at the very end of a great scene of confrontation, it almost always says the exact same thing. And the leaders decided from that day forward to figure out a way to put him to death. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that his courage and his boldness, just like Charles Morgan in the death threats, he knew that this would be the ultimate death threat that would actually be carried out. And he would be put to death. And the anger, their anger, would be satisfied, ultimately, ironically, because the Father's anger towards their sin would be satisfied. And Jesus was able to lead with a righteous anger because he knew that unrighteous anger would be dealt with. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know what happened to Charles Morgan other than that he became a a lawyer in the civil rights movement. I don't know a whole lot more about his story beyond that. But I do know this. I do know that we were made for boldness and courage. And I want to believe that Charles Morgan on that day, the day after the bombing in Birmingham, that he did it out of a place of love. That he did it because he was calling his own people to change their ways. Listen, Jesus wants that for you and he wants that for me. He wants City Church to be a city shining on a hill for the city of Atlanta. And that we would lead, not because we have to get our act together like the Pharisees, that we have to do image management, but because we are broken and because grace has arrived in Jesus Christ who has provoked us, but who has satisfied the provocation by going to his death for us, raised to new life. May we be those men and women living out of that place of love and mercy for the sake of our city. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you that, that you have made us to be men and women and children of courage and boldness, but, but not on the world's terms, your terms. A sort of boldness, a sort of courage that would call the world justice that would call the world to the flourishing and abundance of life. The sort of sort of boldness that can only come from having been wounded by a great friend like you. The sort of boldness that can only emerge from love and mercy. So Father gives that sort of courage. Courage that overcomes fear and the willingness to speak words of life in a way that brings forth life and And when we receive those words of life from a friend, may we receive those words with repentance. May we receive those words with a heart that says, I want to go further up and further in with Jesus by any means necessary. Father, we thank you for the words of life today. Jesus Christ, we pray this in your name. Amen.